I trust you still have your Bibles open to the book of Ecclesiastes. You should uh, have no trouble finding your way there. Uh, as we've been in this, this will be our 13th uh, message, 13th and final message in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, and we're covering just a few verses at the end of uh, chapter 12 uh, this morning. I do encourage you to have a copy of God's Word uh, open in front of you, whether it's a copy that you brought for home from home, whether it's a copy that you get out of the pew in front of you, whether it's an electronic copy, it doesn't matter to me, uh, however you... Uh, however you choose to follow along, but it is important to have God's Word uh, open in your lap uh, in front of you. Well, as I said, and as Ben said, uh, we've reached the end of our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we started this series back in September. Um, it's always uh, it's always kind of a, I don't know if it's a bittersweet or, or what the emotion is when when we get to finish studying through a book together, we haven't spent nearly as long in this as we did certainly in the book of Acts, uh, but it is uh, a sense of accomplishment as we get to finish up uh, a study. Uh, you probably noticed just from the slides or whatever, the title of this series has been Going Vertical. And the reason that I titled it Going Vertical is because everything that we've seen throughout this book is on the horizontal. It's under the sun. It's how things are viewed just horizontally. And in order to to preach the gospel or to preach what this book was designed to point to, we've had to go beyond the horizontal to point to the vertical, to lift our eyes up from what's underneath the sun and lift our eyes to see the sun. I think I told you at the beginning that I, I had wanted to preach this book for years. This book's always fascinated me, but I just didn't know how to preach it. I thought that the only way that this book could really be preached was to preach all 12 chapters in one sermon. But I, we probably would have had a revolt <laughs> on our hands. Uh, because I, the reason that I thought that you needed to preach the whole thing in one sermon was because in my understanding of this text at the time, you didn't get to the good news until the end, until this passage that we're in this morning. Well, here's the thing. as I've studied this for months, even months before uh, we, started, we started preaching it. I, I've come to realize that Solomon never gets to good news. Even in this passage that we're at this morning, he never, ever gets to the good news. Even in this epilogue, these last... Verses 9 through 14, he, he still doesn't get to the good news. For years, I, I thought that these verses, this epilogue that we're looking at this morning, I thought that they were saying something, that Solomon was saying something different than what he said throughout the book. Almost like that they were tacked on by a different author. And as, as you read different commentators and different scholars, there are, as a matter of fact, most of them say that this was added on later by a different author. And the reason that they say that is because they see it as almost trying to correct everything that Solomon has said in the first 11 and a half chapters. Well, that's not the case. These verses aren't just tacked on later. They're, they're not, they weren't added to, ta- to kind of correct anything. No, they're saying exactly the same thing that the preacher, the, the teacher, Solomon, 
was saying all throughout the book. Here in his, what I believe, what I understand was Solomon's last, uh, last writing, his magnum opus, if you will. His capstone writing. Here in his capstone writing, this preacher, this teacher of Israel is concluding everything that he said by expressing the same vanity as he's expressed throughout the rest of the book. Like everything else that he's written, you can, you can feel the emptiness of life under the sun. Even though he says some good things throughout it, it's all viewed from that lens. It's all of the emptiness. Even here in the end, it's still vanity. It's still chasing after the wind. And his attempt to sum up all of his writing, once again, Solomon first points back to the emptiness of his wisdom. He points to empty wisdom. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Chapter 12, verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Now notice he's gone back to speaking in third person here. The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Now remember that Solomon's wisdom was given to him directly as a gift from God. Remember that back in 1 Kings, Solomon, Solomon prayed for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, God says, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Now that's some kind of wisdom, isn't it? That's wisdom that was imparted to him directly from God, and God said, nobody before you and nobody after you has this kind of wisdom that I'm giving you. So here at the end, in this epilogue, Solomon's telling the truth. He's telling the truth about being really wise. He was really wise, and that's probably an understatement, right? He was tremendously blessed. He was tremendously gifted. He could take complex issues and he could reduce the most complex issues down to just a couple of lines. He, he, he could discern issues. He could get to the bottom of them. And, and he wasn't, he wasn't just a king. He wasn't just a ruler over the people. Now we, we see throughout scripture a whole list of the kings of, of Israel and the kings of Judah. Solomon wasn't just a king. He saw himself as the teacher of Israel. So he took the wisdom that God had given him and he sought to teach the people. He didn't just want to hold it to himself. He he didn't just rule his kingdom well. He taught the people. You know, one of the reasons that that Ronald Reagan was, was recognized almost universally was recognized as a great president was because of his ability to communicate. He was known as the great communicator. And I think one of the finest examples of his his communication, taking complex emotional situations and reducing it down to just uh, wonderful teaching, was in 1986 when the Space Shuttle Challenger blew up. I don't know if, you know, there are certain moments in history that you remember where you were. 
I remember I was sitting in my college dorm room. I took that as an excuse to skip class, which it didn't take <laughs> take much for me to skip class. But watching all of the all of the news coverage, and then President Reagan, instead of doing the State of the Union address, he gave a speech to the nation about the Space Shuttle Challenger. And this is what he said. He said, The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. That's a communicator, right? He used words. Thirty years after that date, even the Washington Post acknowledged the the brilliant teaching, the brilliant words in that. He said that the Washington Post said that those were exactly the right words, said exactly the right way. Well, that's the way Solomon was. Solomon said exactly the right words in exactly the right way. It says here that he sought to find words of delight. He sought to craft things using words of delight. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote those words of delight, and he wrote words of truth. But notice how verse 10 says that he wrote those words of truth. And this is one of those words that's good to underline just to keep the perspective here. Solomon wrote words of truth. He wrote Holy Spirit-inspired words of truth. And he says that he wrote them uprightly. The word uprightly, it's translated from a Hebrew word that, that could just as easily be translated as integrity. Solomon is telling us that he wrote the words that he did. He wrote God's words. He wrote them with integrity. You know what the word integrity means, right? The word integrity means that all of the parts of your life are lined up together. There's no hypocrisy. Is that the case with Solomon? Solomon talked the talk, didn't he? But he certainly didn't walk the walk. Even with all of his wisdom, Solomon accurately wrote divinely inspired words of truth, but he didn't live the truth of what he wrote. That's the most tragic thing about Solomon. The most tragic thing, the reason that his life was vain, the reason that his life was empty was because he knew the truth, but he didn't live the truth. Even though he claimed to write those words with integrity, well, he certainly wasn't living it, was he? He was living it under the sun. He was living it horizontally. So even with all of his wisdom, even with all of his God-given wisdom, Solomon was still empty. Here at the end of his life, as he's looking back on his life, he realizes it was all a waste. Just in the verses right above this, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It was vanity. It was a chasing after the wind. His wisdom was real, but even his wisdom wasn't the end of the matter, was it? So he moved from looking at his wisdom to talking about his words, his words that were ultimately empty. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. 
Of making a books of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. God used Solomon to write inerrant, infallible scripture. That's mind blowing to me. He used him not only to write Ecclesiastes, he wrote most of the book of Proverbs. He, uh, Psalms uh, 72 and 127 are both acknowledged to be of Solomon. He wrote the Song of Solomon. So God used Solomon to write a large portion of inerrant, infallible, true Scripture. Now, Regardless of how you feel about that, that's what God used Solomon to do. Solomon was one of the people that Peter wrote about in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote through Peter. He said, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy, including this Scripture, was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men, Solomon, spoke from God as he was carried along to write these words by the Holy Spirit. Solomon spoke Scripture from God as he was carried along by the Spirit of God. And because of that... His words are sharp and pointy like the barbs of a cattle prod. You ever seen a cattle prod? You know what a cattle prod is used for. You know what a goad is used for. That's what what a goad is. You know what it's used for, right? A goad is used. It has a sharp pointy end on it, or maybe it has barbs in the side, but it's used to get stubborn animals to go in the direction that they're supposed to go in. Isn't that what Scripture does? It pokes, right? As I'm headed off in a direction that I'm not supposed to head off in. Scripture confronts that and pokes and prods to get me, to get us to go in the direction that we're supposed to go. I don't know about you, but throughout this study of the book of Ecclesiastes, I have been poked and prodded. I have been poked pretty hard. Some of these words have not been fun to preach, so therefore I know some of them have not been fun to hear. I think especially last week, I think last week kind of um, kind of hit home for several folks in the congregation. There were young folks who were coming up to me saying, you know, why, why are indicating, why are you preaching so hard at us? And there were older folks that thought that the whole sermon was about them, Right? Some of these words haven't been fun to preach. You, you know, when you when you watch the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers on TV, you're not ever going to hear any of them preach Ecclesiastes in context. Now, they might pull out a couple of verses like, cast your bread on the water, or threefold cord is not easily broken. You might hear them pull those things out of context, but you will never hear a health and wealth and prosperity preacher preach those things in the context, in the meaning of where they're supposed to be in Scripture, will you? You won't hear that because these things are like goads. They're sharp. They're pokey. But when they're preached and when they're heard and when they're learned in the real context, (laughs) they stick like a clenched nail. You ever seen a clenched nail? Well, What you do when you clench a nail is you, you drive a nail 
all the way through the wood and then you bend the point back around and you drive that point back into the bottom of the wood so that that nail will never pull out of there. That's the way these words stick. It'll never come out. When the words of Scripture are firmly driven home, they will never, ever come out. But listen to what he's saying here. It's not just about studying and learning these words. See, you can read every commentary that's ever written. You can listen to every sermon that was ever preached. You can study every book that's in every seminary library. You can study Hebrew and Greek. You can even memorize the entire Bible. But unless you're living what you're learning, if you don't go in the direction that it's goading you, then it's just a waste. It's vanity. Am I saying that it could be vanity to memorize the entire Bible? Yes, it could be vanity if you don't do what it says. All of Solomon's words, even those those words that we have written in front of us that were inspired by, by the Holy Spirit, these words were empty to him. They were empty to him. And here at the end of his life, as he's looking back on all of it, he, he, he realizes that his words have been wasted. Not eternally wasted, but they were wasted for him. For him, they were vanity. They were chasing after the wind because he didn't do what it said. His words were true. But even his words weren't the end of the matter. Words weren't the end of the matter. His wisdom wasn't the end of the matter. So he pointed to his empty works. Look at verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He finally gets it, right? After all of the depressing vanity, after all of the futility that we've seen throughout this book, he finally quits chasing after the wind, right? Well, does he? Is that what this says? I mean, he realized that his wisdom was real, but it was still empty. He realized that his words were true, but they were still empty. So it's got to be his works, right? Do right to be right. Maybe that's the answer. Isn't that what he's saying here? So this is the best that he can come up with. The best that he can come up with. And we've heard that before as we've gone through this study, haven't we? There have been several things that are the best that he could come up with. Several of these conclusions. He came to several of these false conclusions along the way. Eat, drink, and be merry. That was the best he could come up with. And then it was, do a good job and enjoy your work and leave a great legacy. That was the best he could come up with. And then it was, hey, just party and live it up. That was the best he could come up with. And then it was, have some good friends and enjoy life and, and enjoy the spouse that you married. That's the, best that you, that's the best that he could come up with. But every step along the way, every time that he comes to one of those best that he could come up with conclusions, we've seen how each of those ends up being just vanity Ultimately, being vanity, being a chasing after the wind. Apart from Christ, each of those things ultimately is just chasing after the wind. 
So now he comes up with his final conclusion. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. I didn't know what he's saying. Fear God and keep His commandments because you know judgment day is coming. Christmas morning's coming. You want your stocking full. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. But he didn't feel fine, did he? The end of the matter all has been heard. Is that the best you can hope for? Is that the best that there is? Saying, you know, if we just, if we have some sort of cowering, awestruck fear of God, is that the best that you can, is that the best that we can hope for? Or maybe, maybe we should long for a real relationship with Him. What, what about the, what about the rules? Is obeying the Ten Commandments, is that the best that you can hope for? How does Solomon do with that? Not too well, did he? He built idols, right? Built idols all over Israel. So that violated the first two right off. Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> he had 300 concubines to help him shatter that one. What about murder? When you read right into First and Second Kings, you see that he slaughtered all of his relatives who were rivals to the throne. So he blew that one out of the water. And that's just a handful of the commandments. Fear God. He obviously didn't fear God enough, did he? Keep his commandments. He broke all of them. Matter of fact, he broke as many commandments as I have. And he broke as many commandments as you have. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So even though Solomon claimed that, that those things were the end of the matter, his works fell short, just like his wisdom fell short, just like his words fell short. His wisdom was real wisdom, but that was not the end of the matter. His words were true words, but they weren't the end of the matter. And his works, some of them, many of them were certainly good works, but they definitely weren't the end of the matter, were they? So he ends the same place that he's been throughout this book. But as we enter this Advent season this morning, I want us in here to see the real end of the matter. The real end of the matter took on flesh, was wrapped in swaddling clothes, was laid in a manger there in Bethlehem on that first Christmas morning over 2,000 years ago. Oh, Solomon's wisdom was real, but it was incomplete without Jesus. It was incomplete without Jesus because 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24 says that Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Apart from Jesus, whatever wisdom that you can muster falls far short. It is vanity because Christ is our wisdom. And Solomon's words, they were true, but they were incomplete without Jesus because Jesus is the Word. First, or John chapter 1, verse 4, 
John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But the most tragic thing about Solomon's works, they might have been seen as good, but even if his works had been perfect, if his works had been as completely perfect as you can possibly imagine, his works would have been completely insufficient to save him. Even as perfect as his works could have possibly been, apart from Christ, they would have been vain. Even our best attempts at righteousness are as filthy rags in his sight. See, Solomon got it wrong. He got it wrong. Fearing God and trying to keep His commandments is not the end of the matter. It's only the beginning. Now I want you to flip over in your Bible to Galatians. We're going to go vertical with this. So flip over to Galatians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians. If you hit Ephesians, you went a little bit too far. Galatians chapter 4. So he talked about doing God's commandments. That's the, that's the full duty of man, right? Well, what is the purpose of God's commandments? What is the purpose of God's law? Above all else, God's law is to show us that it is impossible for us to be as holy as God requires us to be. Matthew chapter 5, 48, Jesus said, Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And what we saw with James is even if you violated one little part of the commandment, you violated it all. So the law is there to show us that it is impossible for us to be as holy as God requires us to be. Trying to live as holy as God requires us to be is vain. It's empty. It's chasing the wind. And here in Galatians, Paul compares it to the bondage of slavery. So let's read verses 1 through 7. Chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he's called, or as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba which is the Aramaic word for daddy. Crying daddy, father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, God never intended for us to live in bondage. He didn't intend for us to live even under the bondage of the law. He didn't intend for us to live in bondage to the vanity of sin. He didn't intend for us to live in the bondage of chasing after the law, chasing after our own attempts at righteousness, our own attempts at perfecting ourselves. He didn't intend for us to live in that kind of slavery, that kind of bondage. No, He gave us the law for the same reason that He gave us the book of Ecclesiastes. He gave us that to show us our desperate need for grace. Our desperate need for One who fulfilled the law in every point. 
The one who became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's why He gave us the law. While you and I were in the bondage of trying to figure it all out on our own, while we were in the bondage of chasing relationship after relationship, while we were in the bondage of trying to find fulfillment in achievement or sex or partying or friendship or even family, while we were enslaved to those things, while we were enslaved to the vanity of the world, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem those who were vainly in bondage to the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And instead of cowering in fear to God, we can cry out to Him as Abba. We can cry out to Him as Daddy. See, Jesus came to give you freedom. He came to release you from the freedom of bondage. Jesus came to give you freedom to be blessed by, by real wisdom without being in bondage to it. Jesus came to give you freedom to be blessed by true words without being defeated and disgraced by them. He came to give you freedom to do good works without either feeling the shame of being insufficient or being puffed up and arrogant because of your works. He came to rescue from the slavery of living your vain and empty life under the sun. He came so that you can be called and I can be called His son or daughter. So what's the end of the matter for you? Are you still chasing after it? Are you still chasing after the wind? Are you trying to find your purpose in the bondage of Christless wisdom and works and words? Is that where you're still trying to find your purpose? See, if nothing else, this book of Ecclesiastes is begging you not to get to the end of your life and look back one day and realize that everything that you've done, everything that you lived has been in vanity, has been chasing after the wind. So I'm begging you not to do that. I'm begging you to start today. Make the choice today. Not just to cower in fear to God. Not just to look up to Him as the, as the man upstairs that you have some sort of a, a twisted respect for. But to follow Him. Follow Him by accepting His Son. Accepting the free gift of grace that He gave you. Accepting His Son, Jesus, as your Lord and Master and Savior. Make the choice to not just try to give, live a good life and try to follow God's rules out of fear of judgment. But make up your mind today to obey Him. Obey Him out of the love that a child has for their father. A child has for their daddy. Follow Jesus and live for Him. That is the true end of the matter.